know, one of the appeals of Dubai as a city is in the fact that it is relatively new. Most of the infrastructure here has been built over the last 30 years. So you talk about <clears throat> Dubai Mall, Mall of the Emirates, Burj Khalifa, Burj Al Arab, Dubai Frame, and even the latest of all, the Museum of the Future. The roads are wide and very new. I remember driving with a friend who visited last December. As we drove along Sheikh Zayed Road, he looked around and he exclaimed, I'm sure there are no old cars in Dubai. Now, most of us uh, come from uh, cities that are old and in some cases they are not even planned well. But that is not Dubai. Dubai is very different. It is new, it's well planned, and that is what endears this city to many of its visitors and even the residents, those of us who live here. We all love new things, don't we? We get excited about our new job, the joys of a newly married couple, new parent, our new cars, the teenagers among us here, they love their new gadget. There is an appeal about newness. Now, not many of us like old stuff. We love new things. And it turns out that even the Bible describes our lives in those terms. So our appeal, the appeal for newness is not only with our daily experiences. The Bible describes our lives in terms of old and new. In many places in the New Testament, we are called to put off our old self and put on the new self. In, in this uh, sense, the old self is described as the life we lived before we became Christians, and the new self is the life after Christ. We read, it says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. Like Dubai, newness is appealing. When people see our new life in Christ, they become curious and are attracted. I'm sure there are people who will not be happy that you changed because you probably will not be in the same circles with them. But by and large, when we put on our new self, the world takes notice. They look at us in a different way. The world becomes curious. And that's what we call to do, to put on the new self. Now, last week, Christians all over the world celebrated the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's also known as Easter. This is a, a time in history when the eternal Son of God, who has taken on the flesh of man, he went onto the cross. He was crucified for the, the death that he did not deserve. He had lived a perfect life, and yet he went onto the cross on our behalf. And yet the Bible says that, on the third day, he was raised again from death to life. And God has said that anyone who accepts him as their Lord and personal Savior, he would credit Jesus Christ's uh, righteousness to them. And this is what we call salvation. Salvation is an instantaneous act where God declares anyone who repents and believes in Jesus as just. We move from death to life, 
the old life of sin passes away and the new life of righteousness is ushered in. Now this morning, if you have not yet come to Christ, now the hand of God is still stretched out. He calls you to abandon your life, your old life, and to come to him and he would give you a new life. You will pass from death to life. What a joy to know that your sins are forgiven. What a joy to know that there is no longer condemnation for you. You will be justified and you would have peace with God. And so I plead with you, if you are here this morning and have not yet come to Christ, this was what the resurrection of Christ was for. And he calls you today to come. And if by God's grace you are already a Christian, the question before us this morning is, how does the new life in Christ look like? And the follow-up question will be, are you living this new life in Christ? So to help us this morning to answer these questions, we turn our attention to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, we would consider verses 1 to 21. You will be greatly helped if you keep your Bibles open so that you can follow along as we, we, we go through the passage. Ephesians chapter 5, we read from 1 to 21. Please follow, follow along as I read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to descend what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. From this passage, we see that there are three marks of the new life in Christ. First, we see a walk in love, a walk in the light, and finally, a walk in wisdom. If you are taking notes, that would be the outline of the sermon. A walk in love, a walk in the light, and a walk in wisdom. These are the marks of our new life in Christ. So let's look at walking in love. Look down with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you want to see what has been said before because it suggests that an argument has been made and what follows is only a conclusion and must be looked at in light of that argument, the preceding argument. You know, so the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections. The whole book, it's about six chapters, and it's divided into two, two, chapters, uh, two sections. Chapters one to three looks at the glorious doctrines of the Christian faith looked at doctrines like Trinity, grace, justification, and many others. Then from verse 4, from chapter 4 onwards, Paul begins to look at the outworkings of these doctrines in our day-to-day -day lives. And so if you look at chapter 4, you probably can just flip to uh, the left page, or the page to your left. The, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul begins by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then look at 4.17. 4.17. He continues, Now thus I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then look at verse 20, chapter 4, verse 20. It says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then finally, I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. This is the verse just right above our passage this morning. It says that, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
that therefore in chapter 5 verse 1 is following from this argument. If the Ephesians have heard of Christ and have been taught in him, Paul calls them to put off the old self and to put on the new self, which is, being, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He calls them to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. I remember a couple of years ago, I was in a conversation with my oldest son, and I asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? His answer made my day. He said, I want to be just like you, Dad. <laughs> now, that's the joy and the desire of every father, to be a good model for your children. And so when he said that, I was excited. Now, to imitate someone means to, to copy them, to do the same things that they do. And Paul calls the Ephesians to imitate God in his essential attribute of love. Now, 1, 1 John 4, 7, the apostle tells us, Apostle John says that, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. According to John, the very definition of God is love. So the logic is that a Christian is someone who has been born of God. There is an African proverb that says, a bird does not beget a crab. To know if someone is a Christian or has been born of God, you must look at their love life. According to Paul, a beloved child of God will imitate God in his attribute of love. Now, usually when we talk about love, people understand it to mean different things. But Paul does not leave the definition of love to us. Look at verse 2. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There is a specific way Christ loved us. And that is the standard of love Paul is calling the Ephesians and us to imitate. Now, there are four elements that come to mind when we think about the love that God showed us. There are four elements. Uh, first, the recipients of God's love are undeserving. Now, the Ephesians were not some holy, lovely people, and neither are we. You know, in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, Paul describes them as a people who were dead in their trespasses and sins and destined for destruction. But it goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved them and us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. The recipients of God's love were undeserving. And secondly, the love God showed us was costly. Now, God did not give us some leftover grace. Now, perhaps he could have sent one of the archangels to come and make everything right. <clears throat> but that wouldn't have been sufficient. And so we read that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
That was what God did. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Our redemption was not cheap. Our redemption cost God his only begotten son. That was how costly the love that we have in Christ is. And then thirdly, there was no self-interest for God. It was not as though there was some hidden profit or some hidden benefit to be gained by God when Jesus Christ came to die for us. The Bible teaches us that God does not need anything that can be satisfied by man. Our salvation was completely selfless. It was a selfless act on the part of God. He gave of himself with no self-interest. And then finally, so we've seen that the love that God showed us, first, it was undeserving. Two, it was costly. Three, it was without self-interest. And then finally, it was given willingly. Jesus was not compelled to go to the cross. In verse 2 of our passage, we read that the sacrifice that he gave was a fragrant offering. It was the willing nature of the sacrifice that made it fragrant. Now, in John chapter 10, Jesus, the good shepherd, says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus loved us willingly. This is the sort of love Paul is calling us to imitate, not some fuzzy, warm, emotional feeling. This is the love. The question we need to answer this morning, we need to ask ourselves, does this describe our love for one another? Do you have a tendency to befriend only those you consider deserving of your love? Think about it. Who are the folks in UCCD who gets invited to your home? Do they look exactly like you? Or probably they share the same socioeconomic status? Or maybe probably they share the same interest with you? So this morning, as you make your hospitality plans for the coming month, I challenge you to invite someone you would normally not invite. If you don't know these people, a good place to start is the membership directory. Go through and see the people that are in there who you would normally not invite. Let's start our own UCCD challenge this coming month. Hashtag invite someone different. <laughs> now, does your love for others depend on how convenient it is for you? Are you prepared to help others even if it interferes with your shadow? In Philippians chapter, four, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 4, Paul tells us, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That was what Jesus did. He loved us and it cost him his very life. Now he calls us to imitate him. 
If your love for others doesn't cost you anything, it is possible that you are giving your leftovers. And that is not love. If your love does not cost you anything, it is possible that you are giving them leftovers. And that is not love. For you, it might not cost you your life, but it may mean canceling your Saturday afternoon activities to take a brother or sister to the hospital. No, last week, our brother Ayo, Ayo, he spent the entire Saturday combing the whole of Dubai looking for batteries for our brother Gavin's hearing aid. For you, it might be going out of your way to pick a brother or sister to church or just even meeting up with someone else for coffee to read a book together to do them some spiritual good. Praise God that there are plenty of such examples in UCCD. We've seen how people have gone out of their way, how we've loved one another. And our prayer this morning is that there will be many more of such, that we would love one another. Jesus said that it is only when we love one another that the world will know that we are his disciples. The first mark of our new life in Christ is a walk in love. And that brings us to the second mark of our new life in Christ. It's a walk in the light. Look, look with me at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor cruel joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Then look at verse 7. Say, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now like many cities in Asia Minor, Ephesus was known for its idol worship. In Acts chapter 19, we read about how a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, stirred up the whole city against Paul because he was speaking against idol worship. Idol worship usually would go along with many debased acts called prostitutes, a lot of immoral uh, activities that would normally go with uh, idol worship. Many of these efficient Christians were converts from these pagan practices. But in verse 3, Paul admonishes them that with their new life in Christ, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among them. Sexual immorality, when we think of it, these inc include all forms of sexual sin. Think about adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, and many more. So he says that even sexual, this, it must not even be named among them. Then look in verse 4. Verse 4, he tells them to put away filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, and instead be filled with thanksgiving. So we see from these two verses, 3 and 4, that a Christian is known by his conduct and his speech. 
a conduct and speech. So Paul admonishes them that their actions should be free from sexual immorality, impurities, and covetousness, and their speech be free from filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. They were to put off the old self and put on the new self. In verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, 1 John 1, 6 and 5, 1, 5 and 6, the apostle writes, Apostle John writes, says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You cannot claim to be a Christian if you hold on to your sin. Because a child of God does not make a practice of sin. You cannot be a Christian if you are having an affair outside your marriage. You cannot be a Christian if you are sexually involved with someone who is not your spouse. How would you witness to your colleagues and neighbors if you are part of the filthiness the swearing and the profane talk in the office. How can you witness to them? I know some of you will be thinking, are you not being too legalistic? Is Christianity not a matter of the heart? Yes, it is. And Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, an immoral life and a filthy speech it's but only a reflection of what is in your heart. And Paul says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Brothers and sisters, it is a lie from the pit of hell that makes someone think that they can claim to be Christians and live their life anyhow. In verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So it is not an issue between legalism and grace. It is a matter of life and death. The way you live your life and speak as a Christian has eternal consequences. Walking in the light means fleeing from immorality, impurity, and putting out of our mouth filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. That's what it means. Then on a positive side, we see that walking in the light means also doing something. So what we've seen so far is what not to do. But in verses 8 to 10, we see what walking in the light means. So verse 8, look at verse 8 with me. It says that, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to descend what is pleasing to the Lord. We see in these uh, verses 
that you know someone is walking in the light by looking at the fruit that is being born out of their lives. Jesus said that by their fruit, you will know them. So in these verses, Paul says that the fruit of light is found in all that is good, all that is right, and all that is true. Now we live in a time when we are told that there is no objective good or objective right or objective truth. But we see here the Bible does not agree. There is something as objective truth. There is something as objective right. And there is something as objective truth. That's what we see here. These are not relative terms. God is the standard for measuring everything that is good. He is the standard for measuring everything that is right. And in verse 10, he says that, so try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If God is the, objective, is the standard for measuring objective truth, good and right, then he says that we should try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Which means that for every action, we should ask ourselves, will God approve this? Would God approve what I've just done? Can I say an amen to what I just did? Can what you did now, can you say an amen to it? That is the measure. That is the standard. So in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, Paul gave us a tool for testing our actions. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So there is something as objective good. And God is the standard for measuring that. From verse 11, if you look at verse 11, we also see that walking in the light is not only about what we do, in conduct and speech, but it's it also who we are in Christ. Look with me at verse 11. It says that, Take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As Christians, we must be known for our ethical and moral living. But we see here that that alone is not enough. It's been said that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. There is some biblical truth in that statement. Paul says that we must expose evil by our light. Our presence should produce a light that makes it uncomfortable for evildoers to continue in their evil ways. Therefore, if your colleagues in the office do not feel any inhibition to do evil in your presence, it is possible that your light isn't shining enough. 
They do whatever they want, whether you are around or not. They say whatever they want to say. They curse. They, they say profane things, whether you are, not, you are around or not. But you know, I'm encouraged by the many UCCD members who in conversations recounted instances when colleagues couldn't carry out certain things or certain evil actions because they were there. Oftentimes, these colleagues would wait for them to leave the room before they would say their crude jokes. I've heard a lot of these stories. Your presence made it uncomfortable for them to do their evil actions. That is a sign that your light is shining. And my prayer this morning is that there will be many, many more of such testimonies where people who do evil, would, because we are there, they will feel shy to do it or they will feel bad doing it. That is when our light is shining. That is exactly what happened to us. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses in which we walked. But by the grace of God, the Son of Righteousness, He shone His light on us and translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. So let your light shine wherever you find yourself, my brother, my sister. Wherever you find yourself, shine your light. Perhaps God might be merciful, God might be gracious to your colleagues and friends and cause Christ to shine upon them and awaken them from sleep and raise them from death to life. So keep on shining wherever you find yourself. In John 1.4, we read that in him, that is Jesus, in him Jesus was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. A mark of a new life in Christ is walking in the light we have received from Christ. Let your light shine. And then there is a third mark of our new life in Christ. So far we've seen that our new life in Christ is a walk in love. We've also seen that it's a walk in the light. Now let's look at a walk in wisdom. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I like the way NIV translates uh, this verse 15. It says that, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Be very careful how you live. If someone tells you to be very careful, you sit up and pay attention to what they're about to say. Because your life might depend on it. Now for high schoolers among us, it's like your parent sitting you down. <clears throat> and saying, be very careful of the companies that you are keeping. When your mom or your dad tells you, be careful, be very careful of this company, you better pay attention. Or you join a new company, and as the person who you are taking over from is taking you through the process, they are walking you through the process, and then as you go along, they now tell you, you know, as you take over from me, 
be careful of that fellow here. here. Be careful of that, that lady there. Be careful of that guy here. So as you take over, they're kind of giving you, be careful who to be careful of. So when someone tells you to be very careful, there is a good reason. And you want to pay attention to what they are saying. So in our passage this morning, Paul wants the Ephesians to be very careful how they live. And he gives them the reason in verse 16b. Verse 16b, look at it. The reason is that because the days are evil. These were former pagans who had converted to Christianity. That means they've become a target for the evil one. You know, the, the Christian is no friend of the devil. The devil doesn't like Christians very much, in case you have not noticed. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, he says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a rolling lion, seeking someone to devour. And 1 John says that we know that we are from God and, we, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The days in which we live are no different from the days that the Ephesians lived. Now, the Bible describes the period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ as the last days. And these are the days that are ruled by the devil. And so Paul wants them not to be unwise, but to be wise, making the best use of every opportunity. He goes on to tell them in verse 17. In verse 17, he says that not to be foolish. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Our question is that how does one come to understand the will of the Lord? How do I even understand what the will of the Lord is? How do I redeem the time? And 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 always is our go-to verse because it's so helpful. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here in our passage, Paul tells the Ephesians that the opposite of foolishness is understanding the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? Usually when we think about the will of the Lord, most of us will think about some personal guidance, if I can receive some personal guidance for my own immediate future. We try to figure out what is, what is the will of the Lord for my job? What is the will of the Lord for me as a person? I want to please the Lord. So what is the will of the Lord for, for me? But what we see here, if we read the book of Ephesians, what we know is that the will of the Lord is bigger than just my own personal daily guidance that I need. Yes, God can guide us. God guides us in our daily living. But when we read the book of Ephesians, we see that there is a grand purpose of God. There is a grand will of God that we want to be part of. We want to buy in into that because that is what Paul is telling us to do. He says that we should understand what the will of the Lord is and redeem the times. So in Ephesians chapter 1, 9 and 10, this is what we see Paul telling us what the, the grand will of the Lord is. He says that making known to us, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is what the will of the Lord is, a plan from the beginning of time to unite all things in Christ. History is going somewhere. Redemptive history is going somewhere. God created this world. He, he created us and we rebelled against him, but he sent his son to come and he came into our world. He died for our sins and what now he's doing is that he's uniting everything in Christ. That is the will of God. That is what God is doing in history. If you are not part of that, you are not living wisely. The missionary CT start. This is what he said. He says that it is only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Living out the will of God requires carefulness and urgency on our part. We cannot just live our lives casually, waking up in the morning, going to work, getting married, raising up children, and going on holidays. If this is all what your life is about, Paul is telling us to be wise, understand what the will of the Lord is, and seize every opportunity for the advance of the kingdom. It's your life just about waking up, go to work, get married, raise children, go on holidays. Is that all that there is to your life? If that is all, these are not good, they are not bad things in themselves, so don't get me wrong. But if that is what all your life is about, you might want to find out whether am I living in wisdom in view of the great and the grandeur plan of God in the universe. In verse 18, we see the urgency with which he writes. He says that, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine. But be filled with the Spirit. There is this making a link between drunkenness and a, a, a life that is not wise. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says that wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So Paul is drawing a distinction between a life that is filled with the Spirit and a life that is given to drunkenness. And here, drunkenness, there is a link between drunkenness and a life that is aimless, a life that is going nowhere. Because when people are drunk, that's what happens. They totter and they don't know even where they're going. And so, it says that do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Because being filled with wine is debauchery, an excessive indulgence in sensual pleasure. Paul says, no, don't live like that. On the contrary, be filled with the Spirit. A walk in wisdom is a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result is what we see in 19, verses 19 to 21. So just look at verses 19 to 21 as we, we see the final uh, address of Paul. It says that addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, 
giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses, we see three results of a spirit-filled life. What, are, what is the result of a spirit-filled life? It is a God-centered, other-oriented life. So the addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and then he says, and we sing also and make melody to the Lord in our hearts. Christians admonish, we teach one another, we encourage one another with psalms, with, from God's word, with hymns, spiritual songs. Now, our discipleship of one another is not based on our own wisdom or some worldly opinion. This is where we get our wisdom from, for helping one another, for admonishing one another, teaching one another. We do so from wisdom that is from above. It's a spirit-filled, illuminated understanding of the Word of God. Addressing one another. And then we also see that our address is not only towards one another. In the passage that Adam read for us earlier on in Psalm 50, 150, Psalm 150, the psalmist calls on everyone that has breath to praise the Lord, to praise him in his sanctuary, to praise him in his mighty heavens for his mighty deeds and his excellent greatness. A spirit-filled life is a life of praise, both horizontally and vertically. And that's what we've been doing this morning, singing to one another hymns of praise. And as we sing, we get encouraged. We read these psalms and we see what God has done. We praise God for his excellent greatness. Is that what you do when you sing? Or it feels as if you are being forced to sing? No. A spirit-filled life is a life of singing, of psalms and of hymns, of joy. Is there a joy about your Christian life? It is produced by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, a spirit-filled life is thankful. It's a, a thankful life. In verse 20, it says that, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is verse 20. The Bible knows nothing of an ungrateful Christian. Everything we have and everything we are is a gift from the Father of light. Therefore, as Christians, our lives are filled with thanksgiving. The Bible teaches us that even the trials and the sufferings, they are from the hand of God. And so that's why Paul says that we give thanks always, not only when things are good, not only when your job is secured, not only when uh, you have everything that you need, but we give thanks to God always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, a spirit-filled life is one that has lived in submission. In verse 21, he says that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It doesn't say submitting to others because they are superior or deserving. It says that it is out of reverence, reverence for Christ that we submit to one another. But it's, it's important to add that submitting to one another here 
does not mean that there are no distinctions between us or role distinctions in the Christian life. Now, some Christians have seized upon this verse, particularly verse 21, to say that uh, there is no need for submission of wives to their husbands. But that is not what the Bible is saying. That's not what Paul is saying. Because as we go to the next, if you go look at the next section of this book or the next section of this chapter, Paul lays out or he fleshes out what he meant by submitting to one another. If you look at verses, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 downwards, I'm sure most of us know this verse by heart. Uh, it says that wives submit to their own husbands, children submit to their own parents, and slaves to s- submit to their masters. So submitting one another in this verse, verse 21, is not reciprocal. What the verse actually means is that we submit, it, we submit to those who we have been called to submit to. So it says submit one to another. It means that he's calling us to submit to those we're called to submit to. So he's calling wives to submit to their husbands, children to submit to their parents, slaves to submit to their masters. Husbands, of course, they submit to Christ. So what Paul is saying here is he's not saying that fathers should submit to to their children. Because if that's what it means, then submit to one another means that, okay, fathers, you have to now submit to your children. But that's not what Paul is saying. So it's important to see here that submitting to one another is also a walk in wisdom. You, we acknowledge that God in his sovereignty has created the world. He's put role distinctions in it. And when we submit to one another, it brings glory to God. It's a life of wisdom. Now, brothers and sisters, our lives as Christians is not a business as usual. It is a new life that is marked by a walk in love, a walk in the light, and a walk in wisdom. The question now is that, does this describe your life as a Christian? Can others see the difference between your life before Christ and the life that you are living now. Now, as doers, there is always a tendency that after hearing a message like this, we go out from here thinking, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a plan and go and do it with my own strength. But it is important to remember verse 18, Paul told the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. It is he who initiates our Christian life. It is him who would carry it till the end. No, last week, when Jesus appeared to his disciples in the passage that we read, John chapter 20, verses 22, we read that Jesus, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It was this Holy Spirit who emboldened the disciples for ministry. He was the one who brought everything that Jesus had said to their remembrance. He was the one who brought the conviction as they preached the word of God. He was the one who comforted them when they were persecuted. And he was the one who held them fast 
until they had finished the race and they had fought the good fight. So this morning, as we hear of this, our new life in Christ, our prayer should be that God, through His Spirit, would complete His work of sanctification in us. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, and we pray that He would finish this work that He has begun. And that's what Paul says, says that he is convinced that he who has begun a good work, not I who has begun a good work, he who has begun a good work, he would bring it unto completion on the day of Christ. So be encouraged, even as you hear about these things. Like my friend who visited Dubai in December, every visitor to Dubai immediately sees the difference between their own city and Dubai. This morning, can your family and friends spot the tangible difference between your old life and the new life that you have in Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that our sin not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no longer. We thank you that in Christ, you have now empowered us and equipped us even to live the life that you have called us to live. And this morning we pray that even as we sing our last song, that our hope would be beyond this life, that our hope would be in the death and the resurrection of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please sing, stand as we sing our last song, Our Hope in Life and Death. <laughs>